2: because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema Rewind. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick,
0: and today we're bringing you an episode from the Weird House Cinema Vault. This was actually our first Weird House Cinema episode ever. It was on the movie Without Warning, a Graydon Clark Classic about an alien running around in the fields of uh, where's it? I guess it's in rural California, maybe. Yep. Uh, Yeah. So this originally aired on October 30th, 2020. It was our first ever Weird House Cinema episode when we didn't know what Weird House Cinema would be yet. I think we were still trying to figure it out. So I wonder what kind of uh, weird little appendages and vestigial organs there will be to find in this episode. Let's dig right in and find out. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob. And this is Joe. Uh, oh, are we not saying our last
0: names here? That's a change. Oh, you know, no, I guess we should say our last names. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, you're Rob Lamb and I'm yes. Joe McCormick. That's it. That sounds good. Let's go with that. (laughs) Okay. So it looks like this is our pilot episode. We're recording this here as a
1: test. It may or may not see the light of day, but if you're listening to it, it obviously did. Now, we originally explored the idea of this being a standalone podcast series, but then we realized, now the, the perfect place to try and roll this out would be like late night on a Friday, like at midnight if they'd let us do that. I don't think they're going to let us do that. But uh, at, at any rate, um, yeah, this is, is kind of a little bonus episode. It's not core Stuff to Blow Your Mind content, but we are featuring it in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed on Fridays. I like to think of it as the asexual budding offspring of our science podcast Stuff to Blow Your Mind, where really we've frequently over the years brought up various weird movies generally as a means of sort of illustrating a particular scientific topic or making a particular scientific topic maybe a little more engaging, at least to us. Uh, So this is just more of the same, except we're we're putting the the cart in front of the horse here. We're putting the the, the movie weirdness ahead of any other concerns that would otherwise be engaged. That's right. We're putting the Jack Palance in front of the
0: horse here Uh, because for our inaugural episode here, we are going to be talking about... Without warning, a film from 1980 that is so exquisite. I could not have asked for, for a better opening episode. Uh, I, Robert, you, you suggested this film having not seen it yourself, I believe. But when, when I laid eyes on the trailer, I knew it was going to be love at first sight. And, and my, my heart was true. <laughs> once I saw it, this film holds up. This is
1: B trash for the ages. All right, let's go ahead and get a taste for this film. Let's listen to the trailer in its entirety.
3: The hunting season has begun. But the hunter isn't human. Only the prey are. It came without warning. Like nothing on this earth.
2: Our friends are dead.
3: Beyond any known terror.
1: It's all that horrible creature, come on, come on. It's chasing me.
3: Because when it leaves this planet, no one may be left alive. Look,
1: I'm warning you! When they start eating on you, don't come to me for help. Baby! is
2: He came down here with the spot. He wants to get himself a few trophies, you know what? Right now, you and me. We are the prize game! The hunter. The hunted. There was no dream. (laughs) The thing that
3: preys on human fear and feeds on human flesh. From deepest space it came. And now, man is the endangered species. It came without warning, and now it's coming for you.
1: Wow, that was something is pretty wonderful for a number of reasons we're going to discuss in this episode, but for, for me personally, one of the things I liked about it is that while, while the internet is a wonderful means of discovering uh, new uh, weird films, you know, everything from B-movies and exploitation films to, to art films, and even blockbusters did, that didn't quite, you know, uh, uh, bust the block back in the day, uh, that sort of thing. But this is a film that I discovered the old-fashioned way uh, on a video rental shelf. I went to atlanta's own Ooh. videodrome i was perusing the horror and science fiction and there it was a videodrome is the holy temple of this show. It's been a site of
0: pilgrimage for us for quite some time. And uh, yeah, and it's great that they're still operating even during these our dark times uh, by a wonderful sort of exchange system that operates out of a table at the front door. And so you can just walk right up to him and say, give me something disgusting that reminds you of The Uninvited by Graydon Clark.
1: And you may well get without warning. <laughs> yes, because this is a uh, directed by Graydon Clark. Um, of that film, and we'll we'll touch base on him in a bit. But before we uh, get any further, Joe, do you want to summarize this film for us? Give us a quick breakdown of the plot. Okay,
0: well, the, the short version is that, without warning, this is a movie that came out in 1980, and it's Predator before Predator. W- when did the Schwarzenegger Predator mm-hmm. come out? Like, 87, 88, something like that? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, Yeah, so this is Predator before Predator, except instead of a bug mouth gadget alien with like a laser cannon and dreadlocks. This is a 50 style big head alien sort of a cross between the creepy clay monsters from fire in the sky and then just full camp Martians like the ones in invasion of the saucer men big head yeah a large alien compound eyes kind of a screeching mouth does it make a noise <laughs> I think maybe at some point it does the does the invasion of the body snatcher screech yeah it, it makes some sort of an animal noise at some point. Oh, yeah. And so instead of taking place in a vague Central American war zone, this is set somewhere in I think it's supposed to be the rural Western U.S. I would guess rural California. And instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger and his team of commandos, you've got whiny hunters. You've got Boy Scouts (laughs) who just sing incessantly. You've got make out point teens and you've got Jack Palance. And Jack Palance, by the way, is a force of nature in this movie. He, he plays a hunter. I guess half the characters are supposed to be hunters of some kind or another. We'll get to that more when we talk about the mm-hmm. themes and message of the film later on. Uh, But uh, but Jack Palance is some kind of hunter who likes to kill animals, put their heads on the wall of his gas station, put them in jars, put them in formaldehyde. And, And when he talks in this film, he is human cocaine. Half of his lines are delivered literally
1: quivering yeah there is a a leathery intensity to this performance that, that to a certain extent you would expect from um uh from palnce uh but it, it yeah he really brings it there's not a sense that he um you know missed call and uh and phoned it in. But as for the basic plot, uh, there's an alien who's here. It's hunting humans. It does
0: hunt humans, including some of the actors that we're going to mention in just a minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, As it hunts them, it collects them and puts them in a in a water utility shed. (laughs) Uh, I guess that is functioning as his temporary like food storage locker. I think there's the implication that the alien is going to eat the people. I don't know if that's ever
1: made entirely clear, but I recall that being suggested and yeah there's a lot of wonderful mystery about exactly what the alien is doing and why uh-huh. uh, which really works uh but but yeah, it also leads you wondering yeah, is, is it is this for food? it might be for food, are they trophies, perhaps they're trophies, or is there something else at in play here and we're just taking our own human practices and sort of holding them up over the the extraterrestrial pattern in front of us yeah uh yeah
0: exactly and so so this alien is hunting humans it's it doesn't use technology, really, at all that I can think of. There, Like I said, there's no laser cannon, there are no extending wrist blades, there are no magical flying circular saw discs. Instead, it uses what I would call a jellyfish shuriken. It, it throws these little biological creatures that attach to people and then stab into the people with their tentacles and make the people bleed
1: and then kill them. Is, is that about yeah, right? That pretty much. Uh, I like to think of them as fresh Frisbees, uh, but I think <laughs> murder pancakes would also suffice. Um, uh, frisbees and, from it, the
0: seafood market.
1: Yeah. yeah. So so basically this, this tall, big headed alien, which by the way, I, I want to stress, this is a 1980s movie. Yeah. A 1980 film, which is key because you certainly expect that kind of a big-headed alien in these older um, in, in decades prior, especially mm-hmm. stuff like Outer Limits and so forth. But this yeah, is yeah. 80. Uh, th- there is a Star Wars beach blanket that shows up in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it, there's something about the weirdness of that. Like this creature is not only... Uh, Uh, from a different world. He is from a different cinematic world. Uh, So he feels even more the outsider. But unlike those other cinematic um, big-headed aliens, yeah, he's throwing these flesh frisbees around. And if one of these flesh frisbees attaches to your flesh, uh, you're probably doomed. You have like, it seems like a few seconds in the movie's time to to whip out a, a Bowie knife and cut that sucker free. Otherwise, you're done for. Though nobody seems to have that insight except Jack Palance himself.
0: Everybody mm-hmm. else who gets hit by one of the fresh Frisbees. Uh, wait, are we going with fresh Frisbees or flesh Frisbees? Either way. It's fresh our- flesh Frisbees. Okay. <laughs> One of the one of the jellyfish meat frisbees attaches to you. Everybody else just goes ah, and then goo comes out of them and they fall over. But Jack Palance yeah, of course he whips out his knife because I guess he's got more grit than any of the other ones, and he has the the, the courage and the resolve to just stab right in there and, and get it off like
1: he's shucking an oyster. Yeah, yeah, there is very there's an oyster shucking sense to these things. Uh, so yeah, it's never explained if the the thing is uh, the flesh frisbee uh, kills you so fast because it's like draining your essence or sucking your blood out or if it's like a toxin situation but uh, it, it seems to work really well and the movie does a good job of conveying that sense of danger. Yeah and I got the sense of a toxin from it because the flesh
0: frisbee the fresh flesh frisbee is also very greasy you know mm-hmm. it's like got this ooze that when Jack Palance stabs into it with his linoleum knife or whatever it, it produces this oleaginous extrusion that is uh, it, it, I don't no, it looks like it would not come out with water alone you would need you know goo gone or something mm-hmm. uh, to get rid of it and we'll come back to that in just a little bit when we explore some monster science but maybe first we should look at a, a cast of characters and associated artisans
1: yeah, uh, well, let's start at the top, I guess, with director Graydon Clark, not to be confused with uh, Tadardus Great Anus, Uh yes. and I have personally made that confusion uh, confusing these two, but, but Graydon Clark is perhaps best known, I think, for directing Angel's Brigade back in 1979, mm-hmm. but also the MST3K rift Final Justice with Jodon Baker uh, back in 1985. Oh, that's the one with a dyspeptic Jodon Baker, and he's running around Malta, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, Cal boy it has some wonderful there's this one shot in that film where um he has his hand on his hip and they shoot it like between his arm and his (laughs) the side of his torso it's Uh it's one of my favorite bizarre shooting um uh choices i've ever seen in a film i also recall a joke about a felonious monk in it yeah yeah uh
0: but so Graydon clark uh directed another film that came out in 1987 which again that might be the same year that predator came out or Maybe Predator was 89. I don't know. Uh, in 87, Graydon Clark made the movie Uninvited. I, I keep wanting to call it The Uninvited. I think there's no article. It's just mm-hmm. Uninvited, which is about a mutant cat that gets aboard a yacht with Clue goolager and George Kennedy and a bunch of uh, some more make-out point teens, basically.
1: Yeah, that, I haven't seen that one yet, but it's it's definitely on my oh. list for this October. Yeah, Robert, it is a top tier creature
0: film. You've got to see Uninvited. And in fact, that should be a later later addition to the show, because it is it is a creature film like none other. It is really unparalleled genius.
1: It dwelleth at the top of the creature film ziggurat. <laughs> All right. Well, OK, so we got Clark on board here. Uh, another key individual makeup artist, Greg Canem. Uh, now, I should note that, that sometimes uh, it, uh, Rick Baker's name is, a, is attached to this film. Apparently, he was uh, involved in the film early on and actually made the alien head and designed some of the effects mm-hmm. and then handed duties off to um, a fellow uh, uh, FX makeup whiz Greg Cannom. And uh, Cannom ends up you know, completing everything. Cannom is uh, another superstar of uh, special effects makeup. He went on to work on everything from Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Highlander 2 to most recently uh, I believe he was involved in that uh, Christian Bale Dick Cheney makeup for that movie Vice oh wow wow okay well I see the through line actually
0: did he do the old man makeup for Connor McLeod in Highlander 2 and did he do the old man makeup for Gary Oldman in Bram Stoker's Dracula and the old man makeup for Christian Bale in Vice Uh, I would bet that that is the case. Yes. Uh, uh, Three, three extraordinary works, each of uh, each of their own genre, as long as you consider that the the stuff they put on Christophe Lambert is supposed to be oily looking and funny.
1: Now, of course, the thing about effects in a film like this is they can look amazing, but it also comes down to how you how you shoot them and indeed how you light them. Oh, yeah. And that leads to our our next uh, future superstar that was involved in this picture.
0: Yeah, Dean Cundey. So, the, the Dean Cundey is a legendary cinematographer and director of photography. Uh, he's uh, he's a member of the ASC. Uh, if you, you just think about a movie that is effortlessly visually absorbing, something mm-hmm. that is constantly pleasing and interesting to look at, without really calling attention to itself as flashy photography. And I think that there is a good chance that you're watching a Dean Cundy movie.
1: Yeah, uh, now I have to say with this film, it doesn't start off feeling like, uh, Kundy's presence is there, uh, because, uh, for, for early on in the film, everything is in just stark daylight. Mm-hmm. You just, you, you wake up late and arrive in this movie around noon in, in <laughs> uh-huh. rural California. Yeah. So everything is hungover like, too. <laughs> yeah, a little bit hungover. Everything's just super bright. It, it looks like it's probably hot and you should maybe be in a library somewhere or you want to crawl back into a trailer or something. Um, so, you know, that's the first section of the, the film. But eventually, the sun goes down. And when the sun goes down in this movie, Kundys um, uh, lighting uh, comes up. And, and that's when everything begins to take on uh, an entirely new feel, because that's when we see more and more of the monster. But then we also see more and more of these kind of, and really at times, monstrous character actor faces that are also lit up just so well. Uh, some of the, the best scenes in the film are just character actor well lit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I would actually uh, disagree just a little bit that I think there's some really
0: good photography and and the film has a good look, even in some of the daylight scenes. I I definitely agree that it becomes more interesting to look at once you get to the nighttime. But there are a couple of daylight scenes that remind me of scenes in Halloween. Of course, Dean Cundey famously worked with John Mm -hmm. Carpenter on movies like Halloween and The Thing. Uh, You remember in Halloween how there will be these scenes that are just in broad daylight, and it'll be a creepy wide shot with Michael Myers standing somewhere in the distance and and Mm. not really moving or doing anything all that menacing. He's just there in the mid ground to background. And those are, I think, some of the most effective shots in Halloween. They really color how you experience the film. There are shots like that in Without Warning too. There's like a shot where a hunter is looking around at at a field just with kind of like dead grass and overgrown weeds. And there is some figure with a large head, just kind of standing in the distance behind the tall grass, not moving. And I thought it was an incredibly effective shot for such a low grade movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I do admit that some of those daylight scenes are creepy in that they convey that sense of the terror that stalks in the daylight is perhaps even more um, dangerous than that which stalks at night.
0: But I I agree in general, Dean Cundy, he's just got the magic touch, and it's especially magic once night comes on and he's messing around with lighting. There are scenes that are filmed inside a house, a sort of a hunting cabin where there's a sudden boo scare where the alien pops out from the corner of a room. And I think Mm -hmm. points with his finger, Very again, very Invasion of the Body Snatchers style, Uh Uh, but it's a very effective boo scare, actually.
1: Yeah, um, I have to throw in that the um, the Shout Factory Scream Factory edition of this movie that came out on DVD and Blu-ray uh, several years back uh, has uh, some special features. And one of them is Kundi talking about the film. Uh, and it, it's really insightful. He, for instance, brings up the fact that the monster uh, costume looked really good um, and you, you had this this maybe temptation to want to show a lot of it. Uh, but he held back and uh, and, you know, d- you depend on a little bit more shadowy mystery Uh, so there are certain details on that monster head that you just don't necessarily get in the final feature like it's Mm. it has kind of compound eyes yes and you never complete i don't think you ever get a sense of that in the film but ultimately you don't need it because great costume plus great lighting equals great experience
0: yeah i agree yeah the the monster is often in shadow and this actually works to great effect uh again it's A a common feature you see when people are talking about Dean Cundey movies on the internet, I think a lot of times they don't even know that the reason they're saying this is that it's a Dean Cundey movie. But you see this thing in reviews over and over, a sentence like, this trashy B movie is much more watchable than it has any right to be. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think it's that's just Dean. That's Dean working his stuff. And a lot of it has to do with, with lighting and good framing and, and, uh, and pleasant cinematography. I don't know if pleasant's the right word, but it, it's
1: interesting <laughs> to look at. You know, it's visually not boring. Speaking of visually not boring, um, we've already touched on Jack Palance's presence in this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think... One of the key things about Jack Palance, again, the intensity is great, but there is an inherent weirdness that Palance brings to any picture, whether you're looking at a blockbuster film that he was in. You know, if you're looking at you could be looking at City Slickers or Batman or Shane or Outlaw of Gore, anything like when when he shows up, like if there's nothing else weird about the film, Palance is the weirdness. It's like he's always just about to
0: start telling you about his erotic model train hobby. (laughs) (laughs) It's just He's got secrets and they're, they're bursting out. They're, they're about to leak out of his
1: face. I should also add that Palance has this kind of uh, Captain Ahab vibe throughout oh, the film, yeah. too. Yeah. So you're, you're never really sure if you can trust him. Uh, him, You're not really sure if you can trust the character. And I think there's, there's something about that that Palance brings to most films. Like, he is, you, you look just look at him, and this is not leading man. This is not the hero. <laughs> this is a potential villain, at least. Um, and, and so, he, yeah, he really feels like this tweener character. Yeah, I agree with that. You walk into his uh, gas station, and he starts
0: talking to you about hunting and and that sort of thing you don't know if you can rely on him when he later shows up in the dark with a gun
1: yeah now uh, one of the beautiful things about this film is that jack palance is not the only creepy old man character played by an established character actor because we also have martin landau in this picture no they really swung for the bleachers i mean with uh with the casting here so it's got martin landau also martin
0: landau i'd say one of my favorite old character actors he he gives one of the best movie performances of all time, playing Bella Lugosi and Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've kind of, you know, I, I hate to, to, to talk smack, but I, I've kind of gotten tired of Tim Burton movies in the modern era. But when you go back to some of the Tim Burton stuff from the 90s, it's so lively and fantastic. And Ed Wood is one of the best examples of that. Of course, it's about a schlock movie maker himself. Uh, uh, what, what's his name? Um, who, Ed Wood. No, no, no. I mean, no. Who plays Ed Wood? What's his oh, name? Oh. The, the, the actor.
4: The actor,
0: um, Johnny Depp. So, yeah, yeah, Johnny, yeah, Johnny Depp. Depp. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Johnny Depp plays Ed Wood. And uh, and of course, late in life, Ed Wood, the schlock filmmaker, actually did form a relationship with the great actor Bela Lugosi and cast him in some of his films. And this is portrayed in the movie with uh, with Martin Landau playing Bela Lugosi as a kind of uh, tired,
1: washed up, ornery version of himself. A uh, quick note: uh, Martin Landau has a lot of vampire in the family because not only uh, did he play Bella Lugosi, but his daughter Susan Finch was one of the producers of Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh-huh. and his other daughter Juliet played Drusella on Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
0: Oh, we've looked that up before when we were watching Buffy. Yeah, I uh-huh. remember we discovered that fact, and it was just a delight. Uh, Martin Landau is so lovable as Bella and even in this movie where he's not playing a lovable character he's somehow lovable anyway
1: yeah uh, and I guess it's more of a like his character goes the way you really expect um, uh, Palance's character to go because he plays this character named Sarge who's um, a, 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 a like an army vet I guess we're, we're mm-hmm. supposed to believe and he we, we learn increasingly learn that he has um, some some serious psychological baggage um, and so even though he is aware that there's some sort of alien presence in the local area causing mischief, um, he heaps like additional conspiracy theory on top of that additional um, like psychotic thinking where he he believes also that the alien might be in uh, uh, disguising itself with various people that, they, you know, there's a real conspiracy going on when there isn't. Uh, uh, but it, it makes for uh, sort of sort of a surprise villain in the film.
0: Yeah, it's uh, he- He's he plays the unfortunate role of like the teens. Okay, maybe we should actually summarize the plot a little bit more to get up to this point. So so like. uh, it starts off with – there are a pair of hunters who are out hunting. There's this older hunter played by Cameron Mitchell we can talk about in a minute. And mm-hmm. then he's got this younger son with a mustache who doesn't like hunting and doesn't want to be outdoors and is just whining. And then they both get killed by the alien. OK. It's your classic you know, uh, uh, prologue uh, slaughter in a horror movie. right? And then you've got the, the make-out point teens who show up in a van. They're you know the classic teens from the city. They want to go swimming at the lake. And so they're hanging out in their bathing suits in their van. They stop at the gas station uh, that I believe belongs to Jack Palance to get gas, presumably. But they end up going in the bathroom and running into Martin Landau as Sarge, who's kind of creepy and then uh, just disappears. Uh, And then they make it to the lake and then the the slaughtering starts. The alien uh, preys on one of the one couple of the teens and then the other couple of teens run for help at a local bar. And then once they're at the bar, they run into Sarge and they're saying there's an alien trying to kill us. And Sarge believes them. But unfortunately, he also, I think, ends up believing that they are aliens themselves.
1: Yeah. Which is ultimately a clever, clever idea. Like, like having the two old men, creepy old men that you run into, one is going to be more, more of a benefit than the other by far. Right. But, but Landau does a great job in this, brings a real kind of crazy intensity to it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I, I remember seeing him play as, as much of like a deranged villain character before in a, in a film. A lot of the things I'd seen him in he was more of a, no, really more of a leading man or, or hero. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I finally remember him on the, the, uh, the 70s uh, TV show Space 1999, which w- was rerun like crazy at one point uh, in the 90s on the Sci-Fi channel. Mm-hmm.
0: He's actually in a really great old episode of The Twilight Zone where I believe he plays some kind of Eastern Bloc agent who's trying to defect in one episode, mm-hmm. and he is being pursued by assassins in the company that he's trying or from the country that he's trying to defect from, and they have booby-trapped his hotel room with a bomb, and so it's his job to try to figure out where the bomb in the room is and it's a it's a nice tight little bottle episode
1: shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples
4: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a Gideon man. Available wherever you will get your podcast. Limited to the availability in select areas. Visit at&t.com/hypergig for details.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers. kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard right snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly so visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert snagajob.com where america goes to hire
1: all right so so landau's great in this but let's talk about some of the other actors here um You have Kevin Peter Hall uh, playing the monster, the hunter itself. And Hall is a legendary monster player who most ironically went on to play the Predator in both Predator 1 and 2. So this is where things almost get kind of
0: suspicious and you wonder, like, (laughs) I don't know about the screenwriters who wrote Predator, but but –
1: did they actually watch this movie? Were they actually just ripping it off i don't know i mean i think we'll we'll get into that a little bit when we discuss the, like the the ideas behind it sort of the um the the mythic underpinnings of the film but Maybe. Um, now, now Kevin Peter Hall also played some other uh, monsters during his time. He, he uh, sadly died in 1991, but before mm-hmm. then, he played the mutant bear in the 1979 film Prophecy. He also played uh, Harry in Harry and the Hendersons. Heart, eyes, bulging. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was Big John in Big Top
0: Pee Wee. Uh, Yeah. So famously, uh, a very tall actor, great, you know, great presence for creature type roles. And you know what? Mm -hmm. I got to say his his body performance as the Predator in the Predator film kind of makes it. I know originally they had cast Jean-Claude Van Damme to play the Predator and no offense to Jean-Claude Van Damme. But I don't know if that would have been as effective in the movie, especially standing next to Arnold Schwarzenegger, like if the aliens literally smaller than him.
1: Yeah. Like the stature uh, is key, I think. Uh, but also no he's got a great
0: physicality in the role too like the way he you know moves his arms and his stance and all that he he really knew
1: how to play a non speaking role now this uh this movie also gave us a key cinematic debut um the ginger baby face himself Ooh. uh David Caruso David Caruso, so he plays one of the makeout point teens in this.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, one of the ones that unfortunately does not make it all the way to the bar. He and his girlfriend are swimming in the lake. I think the last time we see them, they're literally on a towel getting ready for, for some some makeout action, and then uh, and then they just end up later in the in the waterworks shed. Uh, but so he is he's very ginger, and he's wearing shorts in this movie that are so short they invert the. <laughs> axis of time and space i'm like i can't believe that people once wore shorts that short
1: yeah yeah it's, it's crazy he, he would of course go on to just make a career out of playing mostly cops and detectives and occasionally criminals who basically seem like cops but uh at, the, at this point he was only 24 years old and he just plays a horny teen who gets himself killed by an alien
0: yeah uh, but then also we have a uh, veteran character actor, Cameron Mitchell, who I mentioned that earlier, he's in the prologue. He's one of the hunters who gets killed at the beginning of the movie. And I must admit, the whole time I was watching him in the prologue, I thought he was Jack
1: Palance because he kind of <laughs> looks like him. Uh, he has the He has a his face does a very similar thing to Palance's mm-hmm. like you just do not trust it. Yeah. You know that something is up when uh, Cameron Mitchell uh, like locks eyes with you. Uh,
0: For fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000, Cameron Mitchell is maybe best known for playing the
1: Santa Claus guy in Space Mutiny. He's the old man with the white beard. Yeah, but that's one of the ultimately I feel like it's such a disservice because uh, that was probably the first thing I saw him in and where in which I recognized him as Cameron Mitchell. But generally he just plays heavies and villains. And so if you watch most of his his work from before space mutiny those are the kind of characters he plays like dangerous men mm-hmm. uh, um, unsavory characters and and in here again he plays an unsavory character um who is at one point just going to murder his own son because he doesn't like um, hunting in the <laughs> yeah, outdoors because he doesn't like
0: hunting that is that is the reason we're given
1: yeah but anyway Cameron Mitchell always uh, an interesting presence in a film he worked, he worked with uh, Mario Bava a lot for example but mm. I, I have also found that nobody dies 10 minutes into a film quite like Cameron Mitchell <laughs> uh, he, he has pulled this in other films he's got a real dirty rat face yeah now, a few other just older actors of note here. Uh, Larry Storch shows up as a scoutmaster. Uh, Neville Brand plays one of the drunks in the bar. And he he's another one of these character acts with just a real landslide of a face. Mm-hmm. Just a total character actor who, by the way, played the killer in um, uh, Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive from 76. Oh, the movie with the Gator Hotel? Uh, I think that's the one. It's like the, the cover is like he it's, it's um, the, the cover is just um, uh, Neville Brand with a big sickle or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I uh, could be wrong, but uh, yeah. So, so, so he's great. Um, I must say, one of the other teens, the the male teen who survives longer into the movie. I, I, I hate to bring politics into it, but it's Scaramucci. He's baby Scaramucci. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what he looks like. Maybe sort of a cross between him and Casper Van Deen. He's got that that Van, that Van Deen sort of like a forest creature eye.
1: I have to say that both of the uh, teens that last the longest in the film, uh, those actors, I think, were mainly stunt workers. But uh, I thought they did a fine job. As far as like teen leads in a horror movie from 1980 go, Mm -hmm. uh, I I have no problem with them at all. I thought they did a pretty good job.
0: Yeah, neither of them appears to have done all that much else the uh the girl who is, sort of becomes the final girl in the movie uh she is played by an actress named tara nutter who i saw was also in some movie with ron howard about a about an evil company that's poisoning farmland
1: Hmm. okay
0: yeah not a hugely extensive acting career <laughs> well maybe now we should get infuriatingly granular about the physical reality imagined by this film <laughs>
1: Yes, it's time for a little monster science, Uh, because ultimately this, this is often the case. If you have a suitably weird creature, monster or even just monstrous scenario in a film, there's we've always found that there's generally something in nature that is as weird, if not weirder. Mm hmm. And this is the same thing can be said about this film. So we already touched on the fact that, uh, unlike the predator, this hunter doesn't use technology to, to hunt its prey. No, it uses uh, other organisms. It uses flesh frisbees. I yeah. mean, presumably there are other organisms. I guess it's possible that it is, like, hatching these from its chest and then collecting them in its purse or satchel and then flinging them out. But I, I think the predominant interpretation, uh, the fair interpretation would be that these are other organisms that it has. Maybe it raises them in a tank somewhere. Maybe it goes to some weird moon and collects them uh-huh. uh, like, a, like a mushroom harvester. But at any rate, it comes to Earth with a sack of these things uh, looking for a good hunt.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the, the jellyfish shirokin, as I mentioned, now, I think maybe you could think of them as technology, but they're definitely not like inert, like mechanical technology. If they're right. technology at all, they're biotechnology. These things are definitely alive in some way. They ooze. They're full of Oleaginous you know substances they got like little tentacles that poke out they squeal i think when you stab them so they're mm-hmm. definitely alive in some way and yeah I, I was curious about the same thing are these like part of him part of the hunter in some way we, we don't i don't think we ever see them come off of his body in the movie he just throws no. them yeah so, they come
1: out of a satchel or purse yeah
0: yeah so it makes me think yeah maybe there's some kind of organism that he has collected from the natural world on his home planet or or like you said say, like a moon or something, uh, they made me think, actually, of I, I recall back in the the very first Half-Life game, there was a weapon you could get that were basically these little alien rats. And I don't remember exactly what they were called, but you get like a bag of these alien rats and you could kind of throw them into a room and they'd run around and attack whatever was in the room. But if you ran into the room yourself, you were also vulnerable to them. They could like turn around and attack you. And I, huh. I wondered if the same thing would be true of the flesh frisbees in this movie like could they could they turn against their master I don't think we we see a character try to employ that method but we never see it work <laughs>
1: Yeah she doesn't really have a good throwing arm on her
0: no so one thing about these projectiles that I was looking for uh, biological uh, parallels to is the fact that they are so obviously slimy and oleaginous, right? They look they look greasy. You get repeated close ups of the slime and the mucus they produce, and it looks oily to me. It looks like you'd need some good soap or something to get it off. And as a point of comparison in the natural world, I do want to mention a very alarming grease throwing animal, which uh, is a is a type of petrel, a kind of uh, uh, bird of the southern half of the world, which projects a greasy slime vomit against other birds as a defensive tactic. The, most, uh, the, the bird best known for this is a type of bird called fulmars, where they will spit out of their mouth a type of stomach oil. That if it gets on the feathers of an attacking bird, say an eagle type predator, it makes it undercuts the feathers' ability to be waterproof and uh, and it hurts their ability to fly. So birds have actually died because they were spit on with this mucus, vomit, oil stuff from the from the fulmar's stomach. Uh, there there were in fact like cases I was reading of. Where birds like auks were put in an enclosure with a fulmar and then got vomited on and died. Oh wow! So you don't want this oil on you. I was also reading in a in a post on Scientific American about how sometimes the chicks of these fulmars will just basically spit this oil at anything that gets close to them, including their own parents, and they have to yeah. like mature out of that over time. And the parents apparently can uh, defend themselves by preening by removing it, you know, from their feathers with their beaks.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of one of these right now, and um, it's like a vile orange grease that seems to be flying out of this creature's mouth.
0: You don't want to get the goo on you. And <laughs> just like in the movie, you don't want to get the goo on you. But it also is much more than goo. It's an organism in itself. And I was trying to think, you know, are there any animals I could I could find examples of that through a more complex thing like like the flesh frisbees in this movie that actually does something and i was having trouble finding good examples of, of something that actually throws something more than just an object from its environment or a liquid from its body
1: yeah um offhand i can't think of a good example of that either yeah generally and animals are going to manipulate um you know, it's like sand or dirt, um, shell, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, one example that I came, came across uh, that's probably the best example of an organism using organisms as some sort of a tool or indeed some sort of a weapon. And that is to look at the boxing crab or pom-pom crab uh, found in the genus Libya. Uh, these are these are little guys. These are like uh, two centimeters or 0.7 inches wide. So they're not very big crabs, but they have this wonderful adaptation where uh, they will uh, they will collect or acquire, and that's part of the mystery. These uh, little um, uh, anemones, and they'll have one in each claw, and they'll brandish them almost like a pair of nunchucks or something. Um, they will they'll wave them around when they're doing uh, you know various uh, displays for other crabs, mm-hmm. but they also seem to use them to collect food. And there's a mutualism in play here because the the, the anemone gets, you know, it's, it's far more mobile if a crab is carrying it around. But uh, I was looking at a 2013 study from uh, Bar Ilan University, and uh, they were really getting into, well, like, how do they acquire these particular anemones? And they found that, for instance, if they lose their anemone, they may um, uh, steal one from somebody else. If they have only one, they'll rip it in half so that they have two. Whoa. And that particular study, they were looking at one variety of boxing crab, and they pointed out that the variety of anemone that the crab used had not been found yet in the wild. Now, that could just mean we just had not found it yet. There are a lot of organisms in the wild that, that we have not uh, you know, fully charted, obviously. But the other possibility is that it is essentially a domesticated, fully cultivated species that has henceforth gone extinct in the wild. And it is only carried on by these crabs that use them as a sort of tool or weapon. It's like an agricultural product of the crab society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could compare it in that respect to leafcutter ants um, and the crop they grow. But um, but yeah, I love the idea of, of comparing the boxing crab to the hunter from without warning uh, because it makes you wonder, like, what kind of evolutionary path led the hunter here? Did it grow up cultivating its weapon race of deathly flying discs and just, you know, it ends up being part of the way it lives its life? Eventually, they start making satchels to carry them in. Mm-hmm. Maybe at some point they were like exoparasites that uh, collected on their body and then they started using them offensively. I I, don't know. That would not be the only
0: case in nature of uh, something that begins as a parasite, but then eventually is adopted into a kind of mutualism with the host. Yeah. In fact, I think that could probably be said to be the case for a lot of uh, just, you know, the regular microbiota that lives on and in all of us.
1: Yeah. I should add that we never see the alien hunter without his uh, outfit on. Mm -hmm. If they were to pull that uh, costume off, uh, perhaps he's just covered with them. They're just suckered all over him.
0: Right. Or they're just like coming out of a little like a printer slot in his belly. (laughs) Now, we mentioned at some point the character played by the actress Tara Nutter tries to throw one of these things back at the alien, you know, to turn Mm -hmm. his weapons against him. And it fails. She like throws it and it falls short of him. So you never get the (laughs) sense that would it have worked if it had hit him? Like if she was able to hit him with this thing, would it latch on and and poison him and do its thing like it does with humans or – you know, is it just like it? Would he be immune to it anyway? The movie does not solve this riddle that it itself has posed, uh, but maybe that would be a good place to talk about what happens at the end of the film because that's when she throws the disc. Uh, so there, there are various encounters where the teens are running around. The surviving teens are being pursued by Martin Landau, who at some point he gets a police car. And he's
1: like driving yeah. after them in it. Oh, well, and, there's this wonderful scene where the police officer shows up yeah. to save the day and Sarge shoots him dead. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then, of course, more police come to arrest Sarge, but then Sarge apparently steals the police vehicle and shows up in the police car. You think, the oh, the police are here to save the teens. No, it's Sarge again.
0: Yeah, I think Sarge shoots the police officer because he thinks he's an alien. Yes. And then, yeah, so he's in the police car. He's chasing the, the teens around and <laughs> And then at some point, the teens escape and they go into a hunting cabin or a house. And then the movie gets kind of quiet for a bit where they're just chilling mm-hmm. out in the house. They're looking around. The baby Scaramucci brews this pot of coffee and then presumably drinks it all from for, it looks like he drinks about four gallons of coffee and then <laughs> dies
1: in a chair. I, I remember Which, him going to make the coffee saying he's going to stay up all night uh, and protect her while she sleeps. And I, I wanted to be like, oh, sweetie, that's not how how coffee works you can't, you can't just brew a pot of coffee and that's going to keep alone is going to keep you up all night <laughs> yeah how much coffee do i need in order to stay up all night i would guess
0: about 4 gallons yeah that'll get me through um so so he's dead in a chair when we find him with a flesh frisbee attached to his face Uh, Mm -hmm. So you might assume, okay, the alien killed him, but it's also quite possible that he just died of diarrhea from the four gallons of coffee before that. And then the (laughs) alien just stuck the flesh frisbee on there kind of as an afterthought. Uh, But then we get a chase. The alien is chasing Terra Nutter around. And Jack Palance shows up to help her and Jack Palance reveals that he has laid a trap for the alien. That there, that now the, the alien's shed, the former water utility's shed that has all the dead bodies in it is rigged with dynamite. And they're going to lure the alien back to the shed and blow him to pieces. And essentially this process works, except that uh, at some point Sarge shows up and temporarily foils their plan and then he gets mm-hmm. killed by the alien. Uh, unfortunately, Jack Palance gets flesh Frisbeed a lot and and no amount of cutting off the flesh Frisbees will save him. Uh, so instead he sacrifices himself charging straight on at the alien and yelling and you can just tell when they filmed the scene they were looking around at each other thinking like did we ever give the alien a name does it have a name <laughs> and the answer is no so he just yells
1: alien <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, uh, really he does ultimately have his uh his captain ahab moment there uh uh-huh. Yeah,
0: from the heart of hell, I stab at the. I guess from yeah. the heart of hell, I run at the alien. Yeah, alien. except he presumably pulls it off. Yes, yes. See, he grabs the alien around the ankles, and then they they blow it to pieces with the dynamite, and and the day is saved. But
1: like, guess, that's why palance didn't get to play Ahab in a film adaptation <laughs> of Moby Dick because he's like, and then I kill the whale. right That's how this goes, and they're like, no, no, that's not exactly how the the the, the novel goes. And he's like, it doesn't matter. I take a run at that whale, I take it down. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, that's why he never played Ahab, because he's like, I've already done that
0: role. (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. (laughs) No adaptation of Moby Dick could rival without warning. Do I get to run at the whale yelling, whale? (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
4: inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a man. available wherever you will get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit at and for details
3: snag a job is where america goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring
0: Uh, Well, perhaps we should talk about What is this film trying to say, (laughs) if it is trying to say anything? (laughs) I do think this one is trying to say something, but I'm not quite sure it's sure what that is. But I can tell you it is something about hunting. The film is clearly a meditation on the theme of hunting because the alien is a hunter and they just really beat you over the head with it. Almost every single character talks about hunting.
1: Yeah, from the very beginning, you know, like the father and son are arguing about hunting. Like, why do you like hunting, Dad? I don't know, son. Why don't you not like hunting? And so it's should <laughs> be really kind of, to a certain extent, beat you over the head with it. But at the same time, after a while, it feels like they're not really sure what point they're trying to make about hunting. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, maybe to an ex- extent, maybe that's good. Like, you don't feel like there's a really heavy-handed... Um, message to this film. Oh, sure. I I mean, I'm not saying that I think every film should have a moral
0: that can be stated in a sentence, though, if this film has any thoughts in general about hunting, even then, I'm not quite sure what those are, Uh, but maybe, maybe we'll find something here because I wanted to explore these, these hunting themes in literature a little bit and, uh, and see if we can, if that can inform our vision of the movie. Now, obviously Stories of divine hunters. Like you would say, the alien in this movie is, in a way, a divine hunter, right? It comes down oh, from yeah. the sky, it's got superhuman powers, and it uses them to hunt on Earth, but not just to hunt beasts, to hunt the most dangerous game of all, which is man. And so, obviously, you know, these stories of divine hunters are just rich throughout ancient mythology. Most of the myths of hunters, I think, are about normal hunting. You know, they're humans or humanoid gods who hunt animals. And then a lot of hunting mythology is about the relationship between hunters and prey and the gods who aid hunters in the hunt. But there are a few myths that sort of turn the tables on the hunting dynamics in the style of Predator or this movie. Or one of my favorites, the tagline from the, for the 90s movie, Congo. You remember that tagline? It goes where you are the endangered species.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess it's often pointed out, too, that modern twists on this are are all kind of a, a twist on a most dangerous game yeah. in which, uh, you know, humans are hunting humans. Um, and then in just in sci-fi, like there was an older uh, Isaac Asimov story uh, in which there's like a time traveler who gets drunk at a bar and tells everybody that he traveled back to dinosaur days and found that... Um, reptilian humanoids hunted all the dinosaurs to extinction so this idea of alien or alien-esque hunters uh you know certainly predates even this film
0: yeah 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 and uh, other sci-fi stories have touched on th- hunting themes of course i mean i uh, the one that immediately comes to mind is a sound of thunder where there's yeah. time travel again And the idea that, but this is also about humans hunting animals. In that story, the humans go back, they hunt dinosaurs, and unfortunately, in hunting dinosaurs, they create ripple effects throughout time. You know, it's the butterfly effect explored. Um, But this, of course, is the theme. We're we're talking here about humans or humanoid gods being the prey. And I think there are some myths that sort of get into territory, at least close to this. One example is. A number of myths about the Greek goddess Artemis having various kinds of hunts for humans or at least hunting – Sort of revenge on humans that in some way resembles a hunt. Uh, Artemis, Artemis is an interesting figure. Of course, she is the virgin goddess of the hunt in Greek mythology. There are some connections between her and and probably older, more ancient goddesses uh, who symbolized something having to do with fertility in the ancient Near East. But in in Greek mythology, Artemis is very often associated with hunts and and hunting weapons and the wilderness and wild animals. She had these stags and deer that are sacred to her. Uh, She, like the predator and like the alien in Without Warning, has powerful supernatural tools that aid her in the hunt. So whereas the predator has got his laser cannon and his blades and his nets and all those things. And of course, the alien from Without Warning has the flesh frisbees. Artemis has a silver bow and silver arrows that were forged by the Cyclopes in, in this underwater realm. And the arrows of this bow could split a pine tree and the quiver would always be full. And she also has a pack of hunting dogs that she acquired from the god Pan, you know, the uh-huh. little king of the wood, which could outrun any deer or outfight any lion. And there are a number of myths where she sort of hunts a person or a deity after they've offended her in some way. I think probably the best known of these is the myth of Actaeon, right, where Actaeon – is himself a hunter. He's a young hunter who's traveling through the forest and he sees Artemis bathing in a pool or a stream and he's like, wow. And then she catches him looking at her and because he saw her naked, she transforms him into a stag and then he is pursued by dogs. I think in most versions of the story, I think he's pursued by his own hunting dogs that mistake him for the prey now and they, they catch him and they tear him to pieces. But I, I've also seen some some version where apparently she hunts him with her hounds,
1: maybe the hounds of pan and they catch him and rip him apart. Um, the, you know, this is, this is great because on one hand, hunting dogs are a perfect um, analog to the flying fresh f- flesh, flesh Yes. Yes. You know, they, Bi- they are biotechnology. These domest- yeah, biotechnology domesticated creatures that we send forth to do our, our will on the hunt. Um, I, I wonder too about, you know, obviously hunting w- was such an important part of of life, an essential part of life for for early humans, so it makes sense that this thing that we depended on like you know, on a, on a daily basis would would mingle so with our myth making mm-hmm. um, but also I wonder if there's a sense um that it, that it, that it also reveals, uh, especially for early humans, uh, how delicate our place in the natural order was yeah. like in the same way that it's often pointed out that our cats, our pet cats are, you know, are extra insane because in the, in the wild, they are both predator and prey, you mm-hmm. know? And, and so for early man, especially that would have been the case. There were beasts that would eat us just as we had to eat beasts. And, um, and in doing so, you know, a lot of these myths kind of uh, seem to explore that dual nature that, you know, just but for the will of the goddess, I could be. The, the creature hunted by these fierce beasts that do my bidding.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a, it's a natural place to go, and it's a natural kind of irony to explore. You know, it's very much that, like, Ovid's Metamorphoses territory. You know, the, the mm-hmm. ironies inherent in the natural order of things. One of the most obvious kind of ironies you could get into is the, the order of the food chain. We're usually at the top, we're doing all the hunting, but what if you were the prey? <laughs> um, yeah. Which, in fact, and that's not even something you have to imagine a magical scenario for, like, you know, if you are stranded without tools, without aid and stuff like that, you could easily become a prey animal to a lion or something like that. Uh, but but I think the the strange part comes in. The strangeness enters when you're imagining not just being prey to a wild animal, but being prey to a human or humanoid hunter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Being the focus of the hunter's will. Yeah uh because human hunters are
0: different than wild animals they've got you know these they've got tools they've got technology like artemis does they've got language they've got sort of complex desires and will that the reason that artemis might hunt a human would be not because she desires its meat to eat but because she hates it for some reason it has offended her mm-hmm. and that would be the case in say the myth of uh, uh niobe Again, this one is – it's it's not a perfect analogy because it's not exactly a hunt. But the, the normal version of this myth is that Niobe is the human daughter of Tantalus and the wife of Amphion, the king of Thebes. And in a lot of tellings, she boasts in pride that she has more children than the Titan Leto, who is the mother of Apollo and Artemis. And then Apollo and Artemis get revenge against her for making this prideful boast against their mother by slaughtering all of Niobe's children, which is, you know, a very Greek myth kind of thing to happen. <laughs> and so the way it happens is that Artemis showers them with shafts from her bow while they're in their home. And Apollo takes the sons of Niobe hunting and kills them all while on the hunt. And Niobe is left to grieve. Uh, so there is sort of like a, a, a hunting inflection in the in the revenge plot here.
1: Now, there's also a sense, especially in um, Without Warning, there's this idea, too, that, all right, you bumbling teens have just wandered into something beyond your comprehension, Mm -hmm. you know, and now you're stuck in it. Um, And and really, we see this as well with this mythic concept of the doom that comes with interrupting a divine hunt. Yeah. uh, Such as the wild hunt traditions of Northern Europe. So in these traditions, you have gods such as Odin and/or the spirits of hunters past uh, running amuck across the countryside, often at night, with hellhounds in tow in pursuit of prey, and that prey might be a magical or divine heart, you know, some sort of sacred deer. It might be demons thereafter. It might be um, uh, the, the souls of the damned is another uh, frequent prey, mm-hmm. or they might be chasing nothing at all, or nothing that you can even you know determine. Now, the rules of these hunts and these hunt uh, encounters seem to vary, uh, but basically getting in the way of these hunts, or certainly even being seen by these hunts, is potentially dangerous. You might get swept away into the underworld, and in some versions of the tradition, trying to interfere with the, in the hunt will spell your doom, but in some versions, aiding the hunt could earn you a reward. Ah, I see.
0: Uh so so these are kind of ghost riders in the sky like if yeah. you and you you come across them you best not get in their way even if they're not hunting for you. Right. There's kind of a sense of that in actually I would say in a lot of horror movies but also in definitely in without warning and in Predator. You know I know there's a lot of sort of academic theory about one of the common themes of horror being, uh, you know, the danger of going into liminal spaces. That mm-hmm. uh, people are punished for venturing into areas and meddling into affairs that are not their purview. And right. so, you know, you you go. And so, in Predator, would be there, like these commandos go into some other country that is not their home, and they get involved in stuff that is none of their affair, and thus they become targets of this otherworldly hunt. I think the same thing is sort of true in. Without warning, except it's hokey, or I mean, basically the place they're going is like to some river in some kind of rural area. But again, it's like city kids. It's the, you know, the make out point teens are not from here and they go in and they suffer for invading this liminal space.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess you could even say that in without warning. You know, they're trying. They're trying to make some point about the distance between the young generation, and the older generation, between urban and rural. Mm-hmm. And so you could say that there is some, you know, some exploration of the idea that it is like another world. Um, but, uh, but but it does. But make... they
0: are getting in the way of the hunt, like the aliens. Yes. that's where he's doing his stuff, and they show up and almost kind of like get into the middle of it and are punished for it.
1: Yeah, like everybody's doing, basically okay with it. The drunks in the bar—they're yeah. just maintaining. Sarge's addled, but you know he's not hurting anybody. And Palance really wants to hunt that alien, but they, they, you get the the feeling that he's just been waiting for the right opportunity to really bring it to the next level. And that's mm-hmm. what the kids do—they just knock all of the norms out of out of position, and now we're in a you know a much uh, dire situation. Right. But, uh, but with, with the wild hunts, like I say, a lot of the time they're hunting demons and whatnot. But some of these wild hunt uh, traditions do involve the wild hunters hunting the living. Uh, consider the the devil's dandy dogs of Cornwall, <laughs> which um, Carol Rose, a folk historian, who's written a couple of wonderful encyclopedias that I, I continually come back to um, uh, about monsters and fairies. She describes uh, the devil's dandy dogs as demonic huntsmen in a pack of black, fiery-eyed demon dogs who, quote, hunt down the living and rip them to pieces. Ooh. And then they also hunt the souls of the damned. And then there's also uh, the Kunanin of, uh, or the Hounds of Fairyland, or the Hounds of Hell, also known as the Hounds of the Mother, or the Corpse Dogs, or Ooh. the Sky Dogs. Wow. Um, yeah, they have a number of different names. And according to Rose, um, they're mostly invisible. But when you do see these dogs, they're stark white, and they have red eyes and red ears. And they're led by either the devil, or a giant named Bran, or a, quote, monstrous, black-faced, gray-clad master hunter huntsman and known as Gwyn Nudd, And they might be hunting the living. They might be hunting the souls of the dead. They also might be hunting unrepentant sinners or unbaptized babies, depending Whoa. on the telling. Is it much sport to hunt unbaptized babies? <laughs> I don't know. I, I wouldn't think so unless they're just really cagey babies. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So clearly there is
0: this idea that there are Uh, I mean, I think this is common in beliefs about fairies or about the hidden people that they have their own affairs and they're going about their own business and that humans often get into trouble when you sort of wander into the middle of what they're doing. Uh, So so are you saying that that's sort of what's going on here and connects in a way with Predator and without warning?
1: Um, Yeah, yeah. I I think there is a sense that, you know, you've stumbled upon um, this otherworldly affair that you don't have any right to be a part of, but now you're in it and uh, and you you may well face your doom because of it. There is a strange sense of
0: uh, implied justice that is more there, I would say, in Predator than in Without Warning. In Predator, you recall that like uh, the, the Predator does not seem to attack anyone who is unarmed. So in some way, yeah. it is almost a chivalrous alien hunter that it only wants someone who's a good sport and your only good sport for it if you can defend yourself. Uh yeah. I feel like that's less the case in without warning. I don't remember anything
1: Well, like that. we do have that scene where the, the 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 monster the the hunter has no problem taking out the scoutmaster but lets an entire pack of boy scouts go free. That's right. I forgot about that scene. So yeah.
0: maybe the same thing is implied here. Uh I'm I'm coming back to it again. You, you screenwriters of Predator, I'm I'm coming for you. I want to know
4: <laughs> did you <laughs>
0: was this just a variation
1: on without warning? Yeah, I mean the hunter knew that uh, David uh, the baby-faced David Caruso or David-faced baby Caruso, uh whichever, <laughs> n- knew that he was th- this is a character worth hunting to the death. Right. But the boy scouts got to let him go. Let him let him grow up a little bit.
0: Oh yeah, the other two teens who got killed by the lake weren't they weren't armed. So I don't know right. I don't know how that holds yeah. up. Uh, well, yeah, so the maybe the boy scouts are, are let go just cuz they're too young. Maybe that's
1: it. The flesh isn't uh, Tasty yet, I don't know. Right? Maybe the the sucker uh, f- uh, frisbees don't actually attach to younglings. We don't know, <laughs> or maybe they'd all been baptized. We don't. We don't know the full religious history of everybody in this film. Oh, that's true.
0: We never get any glimpse at the religion of the hunter, though. You kind no. of get the sense that. There is at least some narrow bit of culture implied because the hunter is not dressed in what appears to be utilitarian clothing. The alien hunter is dressed in something that looks at least from the the Earth analogy like religious garb. It has robes Mm -hmm. and then it has this kind of woven net-like or almost macrame kind of thing over it.
1: Yeah, yeah, which I think does also add to the the just weird vibe of the villain here because yeah, he's, he's not outfitted like a human hunter, he's not using tools that are seemingly like anything we use to hunt. He's like some weird alien priest uh, flinging flesh frisbees all over the woods.
0: Here's a jellyfish, Dominus Vobiscum. <laughs> so I wanted to point out something else that I thought was interesting uh, that's Something in common with uh, or something in common between without warning predator and some ancient myths about divine hunters, which is how do you defeat them? If there's like a a divine hunter with otherworldly powers and, uh, you know, tools at its disposal, is there any way that uh, that a mortal or a less powerful entity can face it down? And the answer appears to be traps Hmm. in this movie it's Jack Palance with a shed rigged with dynamite. Remember, he gets the explosives in the in the watershed, and then they blow the alien to pieces after he yells "alien." And mm. then uh, uh, in Predator, it's Schwarzenegger's tree trunk counterweight, right? Oh yeah, uh, like he Schwarzenegger sets up a trap that I think is supposed to originally uh hook under the predator's feet and then like throw him up into a into a bunch of spikes uh but or sharpened stakes but then he ha- he has to kind of improvise cuz the predator goes around his trap but then he gets him anyway just by dropping a log on him
1: He's, I think the more um, ingenious thing that Schwarzenegger's character, was a Dutch, could have employed, mm-hmm. is don't try and make a really good trap. Make a terrible trap. Right. Like a really obviously bad trap. that'll just make the Predator give up and realize, okay, this guy's not a genius. Yeah, not um, a good this sport is, after all. Yeah, yeah I'm just going to go ahead and call it a day. Um, so, which, uh, to, I guess to a certain extent, that's what Sarge is doing in this movie because we learned that Sarge is going around digging tiger traps yes. like deep pit traps all over the place to the point where our, our heroes just fall into one at some point but they're fine there there aren't any spikes or anything it's not a very good trap yeah yeah Uh,
0: but this actually does connect to a greek myth so there's a greek myth uh, about the pair of figures known as the uh, aloedi in which artemis the divine hunter again Kills two other divine hunters, two otherwise invincible, aggressive divine hunters mm. only by resorting to a trap. So here it's sort of predator versus predators. Now, the Aloedi were these twin giants. They were the sons of a human mother named Iphimedea and of the sea god Poseidon, and their names were Otis and Ephialtes. And as demigods, Otis and Ephialtes grew large and violent and they lived as these wild, uncontrollable hunters on the land and they were so powerful that they could only be killed by each other and they eventually nurtured designs on Mount Olympus. They wanted to attack the home of the gods and it's said that Ares, the god of war, tried to stop them. He tried to kill them but they crammed him into a brazen cauldron and in some versions of the myth, the twin giant wanted to steal away Artemis and Hera from Olympus and make them into their wives. And in one telling of the myth, the way they're defeated, I think there are some versions where Apollo kills them, but in one version, the huntress Artemis is able to catch them in a trap, She transforms herself into a stag and then baits the two of them into a hunt. And in animal form, Artemis positions herself between the two giants, and they each throw their hunting spears at her. And then she dodges, and the spears thrown by each hunter pierce the other, and thus the demigods are slain. Ah.
1: You know what that reminds me of? It also reminds me of RoboCop 3. Isn't that how RoboCop defeats the two cyber ninjas? Oh, is it? I don't uh, recall. Yeah, like— like basically he somehow tricks or uh, so some shenanigans occur that cause the two um cyber ninjas to uh destroy each other with their swords that's interesting and and as
0: a connections i was reading on imdb that the young actor who played uh, uh Scaramucci van deen in this movie he apparently did stunts in robocop 3 if his imdb oh, page is there correct you go. But anyway, is this a coincidence? Why are traps the obvious answer to an overpowered celestial hunter from the sky?
1: Um, well, I mean, uh, one part of it could just be to, to, to you know to think back on how we would have dealt with larger predators uh, of old. You know, we had to figure out ways to outsmart them, and that that may involve either setting a trap, like an actual physical trap, like a pit or a tiger pit. Oh, or it might involve some or sort of. Jumps. Uh, Yeah, we've got buffalo jumps. Yeah, some sort of um, uh, ambush tactics would be employed, like some way of outsmarting them and using either a physical artifice or a strategic artifice against them.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so when a human is hunted, it's obviously it's some kind of inversion of how things are supposed to be. It's a perversion of the divine order. We're supposed to hunt, not be hunted. And I wonder if there's an idea that in order to reclaim your humanity and your position atop the chain of being, that you have to insist on victory by outsmarting this usurping hunter figure, rather than simply overpowering
1: it. Yeah, I think that might well be the uh, the mythic energy that uh, that without warning is tapping into. <laughs> All right, well, we're, we're reaching the end of our discussion here. At this point, if you have not seen the film, you might be wondering, hey, where can I watch without warning? Well, as of this recording, I don't believe it's available on any of the major streaming sites, at least in the United States, I couldn't but it's it. always worth checking around, especially I find Amazon Prime to be a great place to find just righteous trash. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> they have just a wonderful selection of, um, of obscure titles.
0: Yeah, the the recently they have expanded their JALLO collection in in eye popping ways. <laughs> we watched uh, a movie with uh, Baby Carlo Giannini in it, The Black Belly of the Tarantula. Have you seen that one? Oh, I haven't seen that one, but I
1: love that title. Oh man, it is a it is a it is a Jallo lover's JALLO. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Shout Factory, Scream Factory imprint, put out an awesome DVD and Blu Ray of Without Warning back in twenty fourteen. Um, I think it is out of print maybe it'll go back in print by the time you're listening to this but that's well worth finding a copy of that is the edition that we both watched in preparation for this episode yeah and hey if you happen to live in atlanta you can totally rent it at videodrome in either format i would highly recommend it i would say it's uh, like all
0: of the dean kundi movies once again uh might be trash but it's surprisingly
1: watchable all right. Well, we're going to go and close out the episode here, but we want to hear from you. What did you think of the film? Did you happen to see it back in 1980? I'm always interested in those accounts. Like, yeah, I saw it uh, on the screen in the time that it was speaking to all of the time it was speaking to. Did you happen uh, to make it in it it. 1980? Are you great? Yeah. Clark? Were you involved in the, in the in the film? Yeah. Are you great on Clark? Uh, are you the ghost of Jack Palance um, <laughs> uh, writing into us to let us know that you did defeat that alien? It was definitely dead and that you're character survived for the sequel that we never got to to, to see we want to know about that as well hunter of gore all right you know how to get in touch with us and in the meantime just wherever you get this podcast we ask that you rate review and subscribe huge thanks
0: as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you'd like to get in touch with us we don't know how you would do that yet but uh but maybe there will be a way